In this episode, are you a patient or a healthcare consumer? And does it matter what you call when you go to your healthcare provider? We're going to look at the difference between medical marijuana and opioids use for pain relief and the concept of participatory budgeting. Try saying that three times really quickly. I'm Matthew Leonard here with my reporting colleague, Patty Singer. Hi, Patty. Hello, Matthew. So uh, let's start with medical marijuana versus opioids. Now, I seem to remember there was some research looking at states where medical marijuana had been legalized and there was a correlation to uh, opioid use. Am I right? Fewer opioid prescriptions. However, that data is before New York had medical marijuana. So it's, it started in New York, where you, they, you started to be able to get it in January of 2016. The data, some of these studies now are looking at up to 2015. So we don't, we don't know what's happening in New York. Uh, I checked with Excellus, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and for them to get that data for us, for our request, is, it's buried in a lot of other stuff, and they, they're not able to supply us with a, you know, a count of opioid prescriptions going down. Plus the fact you really wouldn't be able to know if it was because medical medical marijuana was available. But in speaking with the uh, folks in palliative care over at Strong Memorial Hospital, there is far more interest these days in, in um, the people that they're caring for coming to them, starting with the question, hey doc, what about medical marijuana? And even, hey doc, what about medical marijuana before we even go to opioids because isn't that the stuff that's killing everybody? So there's a, there's a big shift on that. Also, Columbia Care, which has the dispensary and the manufacturing facility up at uh, Eastman Business Park, they have reported that from uh, March of 2016 to March of 2017, almost twice as many of their new patients who were on opioids, so stay with us here, you're a new patient to Columbia Care, at the time you're a new patient, you also are on an opioid, twice as many of those people are coming into Columbia Care and saying, hey, we want to either cut out the opioids or really cut down on the opioids. So there is a potential for medical marijuana for, again, in New York, for the 10, 11, 12, however many more that's going to be conditions that treat that, that people may really be seriously looking at medical marijuana, medical cannabis. We're going to talk about word choices in a minute. So let's call it, if we call it cannabis, perhaps that takes some of that emotion some of the stigma uh, around, yeah. yeah. Now, a lot of this um, is coming from the people, speaking of labels, who are uh, termed inherited patients. So they're people, for example, who uh, doctors may have decided to stop prescribing opioids but still have legitimate pain relief needs, um, and they're finding it more difficult to get uh, legitimate opioid prescriptions filled because of concerns over addiction. So medical marijuana is playing uh, a role in consumer choice in that sort of Oh, and a, Transaction a, as well? A lot of it is safety. Medical cannabis, medical marijuana, does not bind to the brain stem and stop you from breathing. Now, is medical cannabis and medical marijuana risk-free? Uh, speaking with Dr. Rob Horowitz over at Strong, he's the, the head of their palliative care division, this is not risk-free, but as he explained, and, and you'll see in DemocratChronicle.com, <laughs> cannabis isn't binding to these receptors that will stop your breathing. That's the issue with, with opioid. Um, as he says, can you get yourself into trouble with cannabis? You bet. Uh, often if there is a death or a serious injury associated with marijuana, cannabis, it could be someone acting in a certain way while they are on that substance legally or illegally. But it is not that, boom, 
you know, the dose hit. response, boom, that you're going to get with opioids. And what he is saying that, you know, he, he and his colleagues for outpatients have certified about 200 people since this started in January of 2016. The number increases, the number of people who are asking questions increases, and they are coming to their provider with, I am worried about opioids. He, he tells a story that he has a patient that he suggests a fentanyl patch. And the person looks up in horror and says, isn't that what's killing everybody? So for people who aren't exposed to opioids but hearing these terms, they're equating a fentanyl patch with a potentially lethal dose. With medical cannabis, you're, you're not going to get that. So again, maybe it comes down to terminology. We call it cannabis. We lose that reefer madness sense of it. People see this as a potential uh, medicine that can help them with, again, in New York, very narrow what you can get this for, but one of those, you know, dozen or so symptoms. Okay, so we've been talking about labels. Now let's move on to um, talking about why this matters in the context of whether you're labeled a patient or not a patient or a patient with a particular condition. What's the conversation around this and why should we pay attention? Well, you know, it's it started years ago and, and I would get it with you know, a person who has diabetes and you'd call them a diabetic and then you'd get emails, well, wait a minute, this is a person with with a condition. And we've seen that a lot of my colleagues with the reporting Trevion Rowe in, in town a, a, a teenager, young person with autism who may have autism. Yeah, yes. not. So right. we're not using that adjective necessarily. So with a, with a patient, there's a lot going on now in, in literature from places like the NIH that are talking about words matter. Are you a patient or something else? So if you think of, if you think of I'm a patient person right, as an adjective, what does that connote to you? Someone who sits docilely by and waits for something to happen to them. A consumer... You're going out, you're getting, you're using. Personally, I like client. I may be a healthcare client. I am a client of my doctor. I'm a client of my attorney. I'm a client of my tax person. So as a client of my doctor, I have some power here. This is some shared power. So there's a lot of talk about moving away from this patient description. And it's especially true if... If people in the medical industrial complex want people to take charge of their health, if we're going to move ever to a prevention agenda, you need a partner and you need a willing partner in that. So if you continue to call that partner a patient, well, they're going to wait for something to happen to them. And I think we'll see this first in the public health realm where people are going out and, and, and wanting folks to take charge of their health, to practice prevention, to be more proactive. If you call that person a client, if you give them a term that gives them, that imparts some action to them, maybe you start to see some differences. Right. So they have some agency. And speaking of agency, then let's talk about this participatory budgeting concept. Now, I know this through um, reporting on uh, civil uh, local government. Participatory budgeting is a process that's been uh, implemented in certain jurisdictions uh, like Brooklyn, for example, where there is a process where the citizens who pay the taxes actually go and make a part of the decision-making about where their tax dollars get spent in their community, what facilities it gets spent on, what bills get paid, that kind of thing. How does that translate to the healthcare sector? Well, the Rochester-Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative is uh, there in line to get up to $200,000 through other anti-poverty initiatives from the state. Well, so rather than just say, this is what we're going to do, they are having the people who will be most affected by this money set up the process 
to decide how this is going to be spent. So that's participatory budgeting. They are working with the participatory budgeting project, and say that a few times fast, out of, um, they're based in New York, and they've done a lot of work in, uh, in Brooklyn. And to set up so, uh, a template for how they can do this. So uh, there's going to be a, a leadership group, about 25 people on a steering committee. They're going to set the rules for uh, the, who can present a project, um, the age of people who can vote on these projects. In some places, 12-year-olds can vote on, these, on a project in participatory budgeting. Now, wouldn't that be great if you're in the city of Rochester and you're 12, 13, 14 years old and someone wants your opinion about how money's going to be spent to help you? So it, it's really Leonard Brock, who's the director of the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty uh, Initiative, calls this power to the people. He says it's literally putting money where their mouth is. If, if our MAPI says we want, the, we want our, our work to reflect the needs of the people that we're trying to help, then they have to be involved in the decision-making. It, it can't be all around them. They've got to be right in the middle of this. Right, and presumably one of the implications of that is that they're also a part of both, they have to own both successes and the failures, right? So they can't just walk away from a failure because it was someone else's decision. They've participated in it, and presumably there'll be some misses or some, some things that don't succeed or aren't as successful. Um, and so is this, um, uh, this is going to be built into the RMAPI, the Anti-Poverty Initiative program going forward? This is like a... a a, a permanent part of how the initiative is going to be, be I, operating. I think they would they would like to see that. I think right now this is this is a test for them, and it's also a test for the community. Rochester's done this really only once before. The then Mayor Tom Richards did this in the I think it was the thirteen fourteen budget year. Uh, he set aside fifty thousand dollars for each quadrant to do this. It's really the only time it's been done here. So conceivably school districts could look at this. Let's take a portion of your tax money for the school district. How do you want it? to be spent. So there will be some rules set up around this. Uh, one of those is going to be how much for each project. It's not going to be, it's not going to be a winner-take-all kind of thing. And, you know, when people have asked, $200,000 to reduce poverty, really? Come on. You find that in the seat cushions, basically. But I think there's, the importance here is starting this process so that, that people who are in these neighborhoods really believe that Someone's going to listen to them. And the key of this is this is open to anybody in the county. So if you want to get involved in this, you can apply to be on the steering committee. Go to the RMAPI website uh, and, and find out about that. Read what we're going to have on democratchronicle.com about it. And so it's not just these three neighborhoods in the Northeast where they're doing pilot programs. They want everybody in the county to have a say in this because, you know what, Matthew? We're all paying for, for people who are living in poverty and so we might as well all have a vote in how we can help them, but it, it's up to those individuals to really try to set their own course, and this is the opportunity for them to do that, and for people who don't think poverty affects them to get involved and say, yes, we can also support this initiative. Right, and we're all touched by the poverty issue. Uh, plenty more of this kind of thing on our SoundCloud page. If you like this sort of conversation, there's a lot of other episodes that Patty and I have had still full of relevant information. They're not just sort of uh, day-off news stories that, um, you know, that have a short shelf life. Uh, Patty Singer writes for the Democrat and Chronicle.com. Thanks very much for listening. We'll catch up with you next time.